and welcome to End the Loop, East Norfolk's very own student politics podcast. I'm your host, Jake, and joining me virtually this week is the luscious Leo, the jubilant Jez, and my now permanent co-host, Kira. This week saw disruptions in imports to Northern Ireland, resulting in short supplies of fresh foods in supermarkets as businesses struggle to adapt to the post-Brexit regulations. It seems there have been so many teething problems since Britain left the EU on the 1st of January, but the tooth fairy has had to come out of furlough. Tensions over Donald Trump's defeat in November's election boiled over last week as the president's refusal to concede and bogus claims of electoral fraud have resulted in a situation so bleak, I can't even be bothered to make a joke about them. Enjoy the show, folks. Hell yes, I'm talking. Heal that wall. Heal that wall. Put on a proper suit. Do up your tie. What Great is it? supine protoplasmic invertebrate jellies. Dodgy Dave will answer it now. But first, we are joined by a very special guest, our local MP for Great Yarmouth and Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, Brandon Lewis. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. No, my pleasure. Well, good to join. Now, Brandon, you've been the Conservative MP for Great Yarmouth since 2010, when you took the seat from a Labour incumbent. Could you talk a little bit about why you wanted to become an MP and the process you went through to get elected? Sure, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I came to it relatively late. I'm not somebody who um, went through school or even university uh, wanting to be an MP. Um, I was working actually and had a, was running a business and um, actually was just finishing my master's degree when I got involved through my business with something in a local community helping a special needs school actually and we had a good outcome from that and uh, somebody who was involved was a counsellor and uh, said to me look you you should get a bit more involved and do some more things and I look to be fair I, I enjoyed doing something that made a difference in the community. So I agreed to get involved and um, I ended up becoming about a six, nine months later, I became a counsellor um, and it became a sort of evolutionary process for me. Uh, I became a counsellor uh, where I was living and working at the time. Um, and then uh, there wasn't many, many people of my age. So this was 97, 98, and there weren't many 26 year olds as I was then. Um, getting involved in the Conservative Party back then, if you remember the real height of uh, Tony Blair's Call Britannia and Labour Party's popularity. Um, so people very quickly would say, oh, you should get involved with this, get involved with that. And I ended up being persuaded to get to uh, stand as a parliamentary candidate back in 2001, actually, in a place called Sherwood in Nottinghamshire. And it was when I was doing that that I really, um, really decided that was a very very safe Labour seat at sort of 18 and a half thousand Labour majority but it was around that time I said I really wanted to become a member of parliament because um, still you know you could through it as being a council and get involved the more you can get involved the more you can see you can make a difference and I was um, enjoying doing that so it was a say an evolutionary thing for me um, and I, I didn't stand in the 2005 election because I'd just become taking control of the council council leader and, we pledged a sort of five-year programme of work I wanted to see through. So um, I then stood in 2010 and I was very fortunate that the good people of Great Yarmouth, uh, which I had an affinity with because my, my father had a business in Yarmouth when I, in the 80s. Um, but the good people, the Conservative Party of Great Yarmouth selected me and gave me the chance to fight the seat in 2010. That's the uh, slightly abbreviated version of that sort of 10-year progress. <laughs> So why did you choose to become a Conservative? Ideologically, why do you identify as a Conservative? Uh, a few things, a couple of things, actually. I mean, they all sort of come back to freedom. I believe in freedom of choice, freedom of speech, and I believe in the free market. 
Um, I'm, I believe in capitalism. And actually, really, <laughs> we've just seen a very clear example of where uh, the free market and capitalism can deliver in a way that the state just can't do, and that's with the vaccine. Uh, the vaccine for coronavirus has been developed by private companies. Um, you know, they've got that ability to do things and move in a way that state bodies just can't do. And I think um, I've always taken the view that uh, the free market is a good thing. It's partly, I think, what has brought um, more peace globally than we've seen uh, for many decades over the last few decades, if that makes sense. Um, because the more that people are trading globally and the free market exists globally, the more there is a, a beneficial interest for all countries and all peoples to um, have peace and stability in order to have prosperity and growth and trade does that in a way that nothing else can. Yes I believe you also have some questions to do with that that you might want to come in with. Yeah so uh, 80 politics students have just um, finished doing ideologies um, obviously as part as, you know when it comes to ideologies it's a little bit more nuanced than just perhaps conservatism so uh, one of the questions that was proposed is whether or not that's a particular strand of conservatism um, you identify with and then, if so, the extent to which uh, you believe that the Conservative Party now is an accurate reflection of that of that ideology? Uh, no, I don't buy into that side of things, actually. And, you know, um, a Conservative MP and indeed a minister under three different prime ministers and three different party leaders. Um, I, I don't particularly look at things in that way. So if you look across Parliament, uh, and actually it probably applies to both parties, but certainly in the Conservative Party, I think people too quickly pigeonhole people. Uh, a good example of this is the, the referendum in 2016, leaving the EU. People, I think too many people saw that as um, a, dis, a debate between left and right, and it isn't and never was. I mean, in fact, historically, if you go back, the Conservative Party was much more pro-Europe than the Labour Party, and that has somewhat turned. But there were Labour MPs who felt very strongly about leaving the EU, Kate Hoey and, and others. Um, but there are also Conservative MPs who are very keen to stay in the EU, including John Major and um, Ken Clark and people like that. It's very, very prominent people. So it was never about that. Um, so I, I actually think sometimes um, people get very keen on ideologies. And when you are living through something, I don't think that works. I think you can look back. Um, so if you look back at uh, Margaret Thatcher's time, people talk about Thatcherites. You can do that by looking back. And historically looking at what did the period of Margaret Thatcher as Prime Minister deliver, what was its focus, and you can decide to call that Thatcherism because it was her uh, premiership that oversaw privatisation and um, right to buy, etc. But, uh, and, and the similar version, but when you are doing it, when you're practising politics, I think you tend to look at things, you'll have that overarching view, as I do, as I say, well, I believe in the free market um, and individual freedom, um, but you are, certainly as a minister, you're making decisions about what you think is the best interest of your country or your community, depending on what the issue is. Um, and you'll do that from your set of beliefs. You don't do it consciously thinking, oh, I'm on the left of this or the right of this or one nation conservative or any other type of conservative. I mean, um, as I say, I'm, 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 I'm very, very strong supporter of the free market. I think socially I'm, very, I'm pretty liberal. Um, so it's probably easier for others to read into that than me but I'm, I, I sometimes think when we get too caught up in ideologies about people who are still working in politics uh, I think that's quite difficult because as I say people across parties will make decisions on a particular issue um, 
not necessarily just focus on ideology. So, I mean, there's always a historically, a, a better thing to assess and easier to assess historically rather than currently, if that hopefully is a long answer, but hopefully makes some sense. You did just talk a little bit about being a minister. During your time as an MP, you've held quite a large range of ministerial positions, covering everything from housing and planning, police and the fire service, immigration, security, leaving the EU. You're now Secretary of State for Northern Ireland. It seems sometimes that you have a new job with every cabinet reshuffle. But what is the process of becoming a minister and the responsibilities you have in each of those jobs? Uh, yeah, no, well, I, I first became a government minister in September 2012, which was very, very early on. As you said, I only got elected in um, 2010. So um, I've been in the cabinet in one form or another since um, t- uh, with, a, with a short um, since 2017. Uh, yeah, I had a variety of us. I think I'm still the longest serving housing and planning minister for a few decades because I did that for a couple of years. But um, and, and, I, and I was one of the I sort of overdid the average period as uh, party chairman as well. But yeah, I've done a, a fair few roles there from housing planning all the way through. I mean, different roles have different focuses. Um, obviously, housing and planning I did when we were at a point of, of big change for housing and planning sector in that we were I took through the Housing and Planning Act, which was a very, very large piece of legislation. Um, and also I took through some of the legislation around moving powers to police and crime commissions as policing minister. So different roles will have different requirements at different times. And we all serve at the, uh, the bequest of a prime minister um, and obviously in opposition in a shadow cabinet and government, you, you, you serve uh, under the leader of that party. But um, prime ministers, would, when they do a reshuffle, will look at or take a view about who they need in particular roles. And as... Uh, in, in, in a reshuffle, as things or priorities for the government change, if they've got particular ministers they think have particular skill sets that suit something, then they'll move them to suit that. Um, and the way it works, uh, if I take 2012, I wasn't expecting to become a minister. It was a real shock when I got a phone call. And I literally, I, I still remember, it was a Wednesday afternoon. It was after PMQs. Um, I was quite uh, happy just wandering through the House of Commons back to my office to do some work. And I got a phone call to go and see the Prime Minister completely out of the blue, completely unexpected. I wasn't quite sure what to do. Um, um, and they just said, no, no, you come now. <laughs> so I then walked across the House of Commons to go and cross the road over to Downing Street. With lots of colleagues sort of jokingly going, oh, if you had a call, you dash into Downing Street, not able to tell them, yes, I am actually. <laughs> just what's happened, it was slightly surreal. Um, and you're called in to see the Prime Minister and they ask you to join the government and, and serve in a particular role. And similarly, even coming as Secretary of State, um, Almost a year ago now, when um, Boris Johnson's Prime Minister asked me to serve as Northern Ireland Secretary, um, you get called in to see the Prime Minister and in the cabinet room and he asks you to serve and um, sets out what he would like you to be focused on in that particular role. So, um, and it's, it is a huge honour because actually whatever political party you are, the Prime Minister is asking you to do something and appreciate, you know, we, we all have political views about what any of us do, but you're being asked to, you know, to get involved in making a difference for your country. And for me, particularly in this current role, it's been at such a uh, fascinating and crucial time for Northern Ireland and the United Kingdom, because obviously we've left the European Union, we were going through the transition period and seeing the end of that and the introduction of the Northern Ireland Protocol. So a huge uh, amount of work to do to make sure we're ready for that. Um, but also in Northern Ireland, the return of the executive, they've had three years with no local government um, in terms of the executive. Um, and also looking at how we move forward on some really 
difficult issues such as legacy. Um, so it's been a, a fascinating job and one I'm, I'm very fortunate to, to have the chance to do. As you just said, the Northern Ireland is the part of the UK that's in most of the attention in the past few years with the whole leaving the EU and obviously having no national government for a little while. Um, Ali, I believe you've got a question relating to that. Yeah, so um, the integrity of the union is a big issue in UK politics. Uh, in your position as Northern Ireland Secretary, uh, what are you doing to safeguard Northern Ireland's position in the UK? Well, actually, it's interesting you say, I mean, this year is a hugely important year for Northern Ireland because it is actually the centenary of Northern Ireland. It was formed in 1921. So we are in a centenary year and I, I launched I, I, uh, the centenary plans just before Christmas. I did a piece with a think tank called Policy Exchange. I'm sure if you're on the Policy Exchange website, you'll be able to download the uh, uh, they'll have access to the, the sound video of that where we went through what we're doing this year. And there's a range of things. Now, COVID will have an impact on some of the things, but it is a big, important year. In terms of the union more generally, um, I, um, I've just been this afternoon working on a piece for um, the excellent Con Home a website around um, Northern Ireland and, our place, and its place in the union. It, it's actually hugely important. I think COVID itself has reminded us all how important the, the relationship of the union is because we've been able to put the, the unprecedented support packages for individuals and for businesses in place because of the strength of being four nations, uh, the United Kingdom. Northern Ireland has benefited to the tune of almost three billion pounds of um, support in 2020 for COVID alone, on top of the wider UK-wide support like the furlough scheme and the business loan support scheme. So Support is simply, you, you couldn't do if you weren't that united um, kingdom. So I think that's been important. Also, Northern Ireland has a very, very unique opportunity now, globally unique, because of Brexit. Um, now that we have left the European Union and because of the way the protocol works, Northern Ireland now has the ability to trade fluidly and flexibly with the EU and their single market, but it's also an integral part of the customs union and single market of the United Kingdom. So if you're a business that is trading with or um, within the United Kingdom, but also with the EU, there's one place in the world now where you should be looking to base or grow your business, and that's Northern Ireland. Um, so it's a huge opportunity that Northern Ireland has because of Brexit and because it is part of the United Kingdom. Um, so I think Northern Ireland's place in the United Kingdom is um, a strong one. I think we've got a, there's a very strong case for unionists to make around white matters. But it's also important to the whole of the UK, having Northern Ireland in the United Kingdom. Northern Ireland's got phenomenal expertise, um, globally leading expertise in cyber. So the biggest insurance company in America, their entire cyber software base is in Belfast. If any of you are wearing or have ever worn or seen Fitbits, the, the latest Fitbits, the technology comes from Belfast. Um, the new top of the range Mercedes that's beyond any of our pockets um, has got some technology in the steering wheel designed in Belfast. Um, and on of artificial intelligence and um, quantum computing, uh, catalyst in Belfast, working with the universities, both Queens and Ulster, absolutely globally leading. And that's before I get onto advanced engineering, advanced manufacturing, air for airlines, things like that. Um, and an amazing creative arts, um, you know, Game of Thrones uh, onwards being filmed in Northern Ireland. So it's a huge important part of the United Kingdom. Um, going back to a bit about your different government roles, what was it like having to move departments regularly and having to take on the new information that you required for each different role um yeah i mean it's i mean it's just one of the ways 
politics and government works. I mean, you don't know um, at any time where you could be moved if you're fortunate enough to be asked to, to serve in government. Um, when you first take on a ministerial role, the departments are very, very good. The civil service are very good at having a sort of pack. When you come in on your desk, in my experience, it's been, there's a, a pack, an information pack about what your role, what the department does, what your role within it is expected to do um, uh, and how you work. I've been relatively lucky as well in the sense that um, in 2012, I went into my first job was as a junior minister of parliamentary undersecretary of state, it's called. Um, in the Department for Communities and Local Government. And I was doing local government, local government finance and the fire brigade. When I then got promoted in 2014 to be a Minister of State for Housing and Planning, that's still within the CLG. So although it was a different role, because it was in the same department, I, I had a bit of an understanding of what was happening there because in most departments, well, I think all departments, sectors of state will bring together the entire team at least once a week to just run through things so that all the team know what's going on. Um, and so it meant that although I was new to housing planning, of course, I had over a couple of years been with my housing and planning colleagues regularly talking to them and listening to them about what they were doing and what the plans were. So you're not completely fresh. Similarly, when I was in the home office, I did three different roles in the home office, but of course, because it was all in the home office, there's a bit of synergy. And I came to this job as Secretary of State for Northern Ireland from being security minister. Um, and there are some things, because when I was doing security, I was also doing, um, as I think you touched on, um, Jake, in the opening, I was also sort of deputy in terms of preparation for Home Office on um, leaving the EU. So uh, Northern Ireland, obviously, in terms of leaving the EU and the protocol is hugely important. So I, was, I already had a bit of a linking, and actually I've been to Northern Ireland as security minister in September before. So again, although it was new and it's different, they're worth sort of threads from my previous job that meant I had a bit of an advantage. But ultimately, when you take these jobs on, you just have to work really hard very quickly to get to know your brief. And the civil service is brilliant with that. And so are your colleagues. You know, in every job, I've been very lucky that my predecessors have uh, taken the time to uh, give me whenever I've needed it to pick their brains and understand what they were looking at, what their experiences were, um, because we're all part of one team. And that, I've been fortunate in that. Uh, Jez, I believe you've got a follow up question for that. Yeah, thank you, Jake. Um, I think it's quite interesting that, particularly like looking at the amount of different uh, government departments you've worked in, various ministerial roles. Obviously, um, since the well, it's always been a big topic of discussion, but particularly recently, and there's a lot. There's been a lot of discussion about the um, the impact that ministers taken on roles uh, that they not are not necessarily experienced in. So, a good example of that being Gavin Williamson in education. There's been a lot of um, um, kickback and critiques from um, you know, educational staff, teachers or uh, head teachers, principals, whatnot, um, about the lack of understanding that Gavin Williamson potentially has, um, you know, in the in his in the impact of his legislation on education. So um, I just want to get your take on that a little bit. You know, you said that when you arrive at, in a new position, that there's like a pack on the desk that sort of gives you a, the lowdown of what the department does. But do you not think before you get to that stage, before you are appointed as a minister? Um, you should have to potentially uh, prove your competency in that in that way, or is it, or is it just purely a learn on the job, learn from your mistakes sort of a uh, sort of thing? Well, I think um, I mean technically you you have to prove your competency as a member of parliament for a prime minister to take a view that you might have the ability to be a minister at whatever level, let alone um, secretary of state level. Um, the reality of politics is that you can often find yourself in a job 
which you don't have previous experience of, but that's the same when you first go out to work, when you first go out and get a job, or you get a promotion to a different department or different business, you're always learning something new or a new approach or a different angle. And, you know, if you're an aircraft engineer or if you've been working in the oil and gas industry and then you move over to renewables, you've got a thread and a, and a competence, but you are having to learn a new skill set and do something new. So that's quite common, actually. I think we forget that um, across the working world. And even if you're a teacher, you know, you teach one topic, you can move to a different topic. You've got, you're a competent uh, educator, but you've got to learn something new or a new environment or a new school, or a new way of doing things. So that does happen. But um, ministers, ultimately, in sectors of state, we, we have to make the decisions. But, but don't underestimate how much um, advice um, you get from experts. So in, I, I've not worked in the Department of Education, but knowing how these things work in the Department of Education, there is a huge number of very experienced civil servants. Um, I mean, in my department in Northern Ireland, I've got a, a large number of civil servants who have worked in and around Northern Ireland and the specific topics in Northern Ireland when we recruit. So for um, uh, working on some of the business issues uh, for Brexit and the end of the transition, we particularly were looking for people who've got experience in um, working in business communities and understanding some of those challenges. So they come in and they will be, they're the ones who give advice. They're doing that with experience. And equally, um, don't underestimate how people have an interest, whether it's um, in education, head teachers, retired head teachers, um, or in my case, you know, people with uh, experience in Northern Ireland will come forward and give you advice. Um, even if you're not even asking for it, people are very, very willing to come forward and give you their views and advice. So when you're making these decisions, you are always full of advice. Equally, particularly through something like the pandemic, it is quite hard, I think, to really um, give a flavour at the moment, and I suspect history will do this better, to just how fast moving sometimes this can be. And very genuine and well thought through decisions can very quickly move as something new happens with this virus. I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example of this. It wasn't that long ago, shortly before Christmas, where we obviously were looking at having the easing up for Christmas, we moved to a tier system, and um, we then had this. We then found the um, virus mutated through. Um, oh, uh, I've got my mind just gone blank on the name. Not not ferrets, but uh, stoats or some some particular animal out in Belgium or Denmark, and it got to Ireland. And we had, so we had to move very very quickly on that, literally in the space of a couple of hours. And within days of that, we then all started to find out about this strain that was very fast moving that seems to originate in the UK and Kent. And then very quickly after that, the issues with South Africa, hence why you've seen travel restrictions changing quite regularly. So, you know, the teams are moving very fast with this, but this is an unprecedented pandemic. So there will be times where people made what might, with hindsight of a day or two, look like decisions you may have a critical view of but actually they were made with the right intent at the time they were made it's just that is how fast moving sometimes this pandemic can be um, and, and that is a real challenge um, and it's a real challenge for for the decision makers and for those who are operating I don't just mean decision makers at a political level I mean for head teachers um, and for um, those who are implementing whether it's across the police or the NHS or whatever it's uh, it's a really really tough environment to be working in. Kira, I believe you've also got a question relating to the pandemic as well. Um, yeah, I can imagine, obviously, you have quite a busy schedule with your position that you're in. I just wanted to ask how much that's changed in the past year with COVID and everything, or even if it has changed at all. Um, well, I spend a lot more time on Zoom. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, so, I mean, it's changed in the sense that I, I like, I, I mean, I'd like to be sitting in a room doing this with you. I've been to the college a fair few times and done Q&As with the politics classes and those interested in the sixth form, et cetera. Um, and I think, I, I'm sure you guys have, but I've missed human interaction. So the difference has been a lot more time in an office. And with my job, there are certain things that by law I have to do in person and hand sign and do. Um, so I have to be in the office. I'm, I'm in the Northern Ireland office in Whitehall as I'm talking to you now. Um, and because I've had to do some of that today. So you end up in an office just sitting in Zoom meeting after Zoom meeting after Zoom meeting. Normally with this, I mean, normally my, my structure would be being in Westminster sort of Sunday nights or early Monday mornings through till Thursday. And then if I'm either on a ministerial visit on a Thursday, Friday, and then in Yarmouth on back home on a sort of Friday through Sunday. Um, this year, that's gone completely out of the window because of the restrictions. And, and obviously in this job, obviously I've also got to get over, I'm in Belfast a lot. Um, but with these restrictions, then obviously none of us are travelling the way we were. So a lot more time being spent in Whitehall, in an office, on your own with Zoom, um, which is a phenomenal tool. It's not just Zoom, obviously Teams and the other, um, but a phenomenal tool. And actually it's making interaction easier. So the, particularly the engagement with the United States, which I do, I was going to have to do a lot more of that, a lot more easily because I can do it on Zoom um, than having to always fly out there. Um, but still, you know, it's not the same as human interaction. I also want to get your thoughts on the events in the US last week. Obviously, the president's rhetoric of electoral fraud has led to a bit of a riot where Trump supporters have stormed the Capitol building. And there are now calls for the president to be impeached. And I believe the hearing is going on as we speak. So what are your thoughts on the state of politics in America at the moment? Um, I'll be very upfront with you. I'm not going to comment on um, it's for investigators to assess what led to the riots um, and I'm not going to comment on the impeachment process. It's just not protocol to do that. But what I will say, and I did tweet about this last week, I thought the what happened out in Washington last week was not just sad and tragic, but pretty despicable. It's not how democracy works. You know, the US has been one of the leading, if not the leading democracy in the world. We're the oldest, but um, America is that big shining beacon of democracy. Um, and it just, it, it was just dreadful to see that kind of behaviour. I mean, words can't really sum up. I mean, I was talking to a congressman just minutes before it all happened on Zoom. It was quite surreal, actually. And I think five or 10 minutes after I was talking to him, he was being whizzed away to a, a secure um, room. Uh, and that's just dreadful. You, you cannot tolerate um, a society where that kind of behaviour is, is tolerated. So it's absolutely right. It's been properly condemned now by all quarters. I, th I think America's going to be hugely interesting because obviously you've got a new president coming in. It's not just a new president, it's a new, a new presidency in a sense. It's Democratic rather than Republican. Um, I, 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 for, for me, it's, it's also hugely important because it's, um, the US has always had a strong interest in Northern Ireland. Um, and we've got a, uh, an Irish-American president coming in who's got a huge interest in Ireland. Um, and that, that actually is a good thing um, I, from, the, from Northern Ireland's point of view as well, because US inward investment into Northern Ireland is really key. Uh, and also, I think there's a, there is a very good opportunity for the UK in terms of we have this special relationship that is... Um, founded on many, many decades of work um, across our countries and looking at what our Prime Minister's um, priorities are, you know, obviously dealing with folk, uh, the folks who are dealing with COVID, but, all, but going forward on uh, restructuring our economy to have a very green economy, dealing with climate change, um, our global approach. Um, 
to the world. Sorry, my next Zoom meeting is buzzing me. Um, we're very much in line with where um, the Americans are and the things that um, President-elect Biden has been talking about. So I think it opens up a good opportunity for us as the UK to build on that special relationship. But um, it's difficult times in the US. I mean, they, you know, it's um, it's really challenging and, and we're seeing a division in politics there that we've not seen for a very, very long time. So hopefully that once the new inauguration comes in and um, President-elect Biden becomes President Biden, then hopefully things will settle down and America can um, return to being that um, beacon of democracy. Well, and ultimately, you. I think most of the players in American politics, that's where they are. I think, you know, when you see something like last week, it's also important to remember that the people committing those acts are not the majority of Americans. You know, they're not the majority of people. It was a, a, it was a large group, but it was, you know, in the, in the context of the population of America, it was a, a group of people who decided to act in an unacceptable way. And, the, you know, that, that needs to be dealt with. But we also need to recognise that America is a very, not just a great ally of us, but it is a great democracy. Um, and we want to see it, you know, continue to build that way and show that around the world. Well, thank you so much for joining us for this episode. Uh, one thing before you go, the main principle of this podcast is to give students a platform to share their voices and opinions. So in that vein, is there any questions that you'd like to ask us? What do you think? I mean, that's what I, I, th I think is interesting for all of us is what you think of um, and how you've experienced COVID and what you think is the priority for you as we come out of COVID, which in the next few months now we'll start to the vaccine rollout and you know, the the best in Europe, I think one of the top three in the world, a uh, phenomenal effort. But that does mean that as we move towards the summer and the sun starts to shine, hopefully it's going to shine in a way that we can actually get outside and enjoy it together again. And as we get to what is it you are looking for? What do you want to see um, people like myself, the local authority, wider government, et cetera, focused on in terms of uh, delivering for you? What, what, what are your aspirations that you need us to be focused on? I guess one thing for me is... Obviously, young people have been, some people might say, scapegoated for some of the not following the restrictions as they were written in law. Um, and obviously, it's not great when we are, a lot of us are doing our best to follow the restrictions, but then seeing newspaper headlines saying, oh, young people are to blame for this, young people are to blame for that. Yeah, I mean, that is a challenge. Um, <clears throat> that is a real challenge. And it is a challenge because there's also a factual thing that the... Uh, for younger people generally you can be transmitting the virus and be either asymptomatic or have very very much weaker symptoms than your parents grandparents etc um, and therefore I think sadly there have been young people who have not followed the restrictions because they felt um, uh, you know immortal and uh, invulnerable as it were and, and not really necessarily thinking about the fact that that you know, if you don't follow the restrictions, it's not just about yourselves, it's about your friends, your family and the wider community. But also, look, I do, I recognise that, you know, the majority of people, young people and all people, have followed the restrictions. The shame and the tragedy of this virus is it only is a very small group for it to ruin everything. So not in Great Yarmouth, not in Norfolk, but somewhere else, there was a situation where an entire college had to be shut down. This was last autumn. Um, and it was shut down because 30 people got together and had an 18th birthday party. And at the 18th birthday party, it was trapped back. A couple of people had COVID, it spread around the 30. And of course they went to college the next week and spread around the whole college. In another instance in a village, again, not in Norfolk, um, they traced it back to a small group of teenagers who got together and had a karaoke party and they shared the mic around. 
that shared the COVID around, it went through the whole village and took out the whole village. That's the challenge with this virus. It only needs a very small group of people to not follow the guidelines, to unwittingly often then uh, spread the virus and suddenly you've got a very, very big problem. Um, but as I say, I think, I think the majority of people have followed the guidelines. And I think, actually, we had a very good example. We had an outbreak in Great Yarmouth back in the autumn that was not due to young people. Um, but actually, the work of everybody in Great Yarmouth, the local authority were absolutely superb. Um, both the Yarmouth Borough Council, but also working with the county and the health authority worked really well and managed to get on top of it really quickly and showed how it can be done. Um, and the community worked with them as well and, and got on top of it. Um, it was a, it was a, it was one of those things. It was nobody's particular fault because it came out of a workplace, but um, but it did show how people can come together and make it work. And I've got to say, one of the things I would take away from um, COVID has been actually across the board, both locally in Great Yarmouth and Norfolk, particularly I've seen it, but across the UK actually is how communities have come together to support each other. Um, I think that's been a really good reminder of the importance of um, family, but not just family in the blood sense, but family in the community sense as well. And that's, I think that's been a credit to people. But it's been really, really good speech today. Um, I hope you uh, can have, a, have great success going forward. And uh, hopefully next time we do this, or if we do this again in the not too distant future, we can do it in person with a microphone rather than uh, a screen and Zoom. Yeah, once again, thank you very much for joining. Uh, hopefully you've enjoyed it as much as we have. And, and as you just said, I hope that at some point you'll be able to join us again in the future. I'm looking forward to it. Take care.